This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 511 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 511 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 452 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Roger Sparks. Now, Roger is not only a veteran of Marine Recon, but he then transitioned to the Air Force's Power Rescue. So we discuss a host of topics from forging longevity within special operations, dealing with the inability to save, the time he had to save his own child's life, 
tattooing, how he got into the Gorok family, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Roger Sparks. Enjoy. All right, Roger, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm uh, I'm really pleased to be able to share my story with you. Beautiful. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I know it's quite a unique location. Uh, I live uh, way out in Alaska. It's a small town outside of Anchorage called Eagle River. Beautiful. Now, I love to start at the very beginning. And I, and I think what's interesting about your your early life is it really does, you know, Again, the the ripple effect of that really kind of is visible in other chapters of your life. So tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I grew up, I was born in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, you know, grew up in a small rural town called Watauga, Texas, which is just a blip on the map. Uh, now it's just uh, lost in a sea of... of uh, you know, strip malls. But uh, at the time, it was pretty much dirt roads and, you know, small mom and pop gas stations kind of deal. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas in the 70s. I had an older sister named Tracy. Uh, she just recently moved back with my mom because uh, my father passed a couple of years ago. But uh, you know, I think uh, the most interesting things, uh, you know, about my upbringing were, you know, my father was a, a biker and he was involved in, uh, I guess, you know, he, he was definitely on in the gray area of, of living a, an upright life. Uh, you know, he was part of a, a pretty violent culture of guys that uh, definitely did not believe in the status quo. And uh, I grew up around a lot of uh, illicit recreational drugs and a very open atmosphere. Uh, there was a lot of violence, but I, I felt safe. You know, I felt pretty safe and, and, uh, the men that raised me were predominantly combat veterans from the Vietnam War, and uh, I definitely learned a lot from them, and they instilled many, many profound things in me growing up. And, and uh, you know, I, I reflected back on this uh, a few months ago, and it was really profound. I've got two sons now. I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, one's in the Marine Corps. My other son is, is uh, 17 years old. But, uh, you know, just as my kids grew up and we were trying to look at where they were going to go with their lives, when I started reflecting on my own uh, childhood, I don't think I ever talked to a high school counselor. You know, I never ever spoke or even thought about going to college. Uh, I think the only way out for me was uh, to join the military. And uh, that's that's a that's a big part of my story. But I'll let you ask the questions. I don't want to go too far off topic. No, but please, firstly, feel free to go as far as you want. But the other thing I think is interesting, and for people listening, 
you know that you have this amazing book that we'll talk about which details your entire life you just did a great episode episode with um jason mccarthy on the um glorious professionals the go rock uh, podcast as well but one thing i think that's really not talked about a lot is the vietnam generation so all these men you know that were um you know friends with your father when you look back now being part of a conflict where um you know hopefully there is there is gratitude again um and you look back at the the way the vietnam vets were treated how much of the mental trauma that those veterans went through you think contributed to some of these you know the the violence in the biker gangs and some of these you know the drug use of that era at that time that's that's a pretty good question uh you know i think that uh you know those men that i grew up around you know when they came back from you know being drafted in the vietnam war you know experiencing pretty surreal combat and then coming back and, you know, the country was just in this really crazy churning boiling point of just politics and, you know, the hippies, the, you know, the interracial stuff that was going on in the country. I mean, you can see it's, it's, it's still kind of going on today, but at that point it was just at this boiling point. And, uh, I think that they felt very disenchanted. I think that, uh, you know, those men coming back, they, you know, they survived their experiences to come home to a country that didn't understand them. And I think what was difficult is, is, you know, they didn't understand that, you know, when, when people experience trauma like that, like they, you, you can't process that initially, it takes time. And I think when they came back, they realized that, uh, the only truths that they could rely on are the truths that they experienced with each other. And so to kind of pull away from just the turmoil of the politics, the turmoil of just the global climate and all the, just the kind of bullshit that was going on. They, they, they turned towards each other. And, uh, and I, I I feel I I was very lucky, you know, to grow up around that because it was a very sincere, you know, environment that, that guys believed in who they were and they believed in, you know, each other. But, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, on the, on the topic of recreational drug use, I, I feel that, uh, you know, someone who wants to live their life and is extremely excited about their life, they won't really do disassociative drugs. You know, I think that people that have a lot of trauma and pain, you know, are definitely attracted, more attracted to, you know, drugs that will, you know, pull them away from their reality and give them, you know, moments of euphoria. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd have to, I, I mean, I, I would just have to imagine that they, they, you know, one, it was part of, you know, just being rebellious, you know, I mean, like to, you know, smoke grass, you know, at that time, it was almost like a, a, a status of like, well, I don't believe in the status quo. So it, it definitely marked well. But I think that, uh, you know, these guys were not recreational, you know, motorcycle guys. These guys were tried and true, uh, very uh, dedicated, very um they were almost like a, a special operations group, you know, with motorcycles, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, a lot of the drug use, the alcohol, you know, all those things, you know, I mean, that, you know, it, it could, it could, you know, look on the surface areas if it was posturing. But I think that it, 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 you know, represented a lot to them. Like it was this affirmation to go against the grain that, you know, with their trauma, their in their experiences, they wanted to 
they wanted people to feel that that were around them. They wanted people to understand that, you know, that the civilization that the country had done them wrong. And so then they, you know, by a manner in which they lived, just, you know, you know, projected violence and intimidation. But really, you know, it's like, you know, tenderness comes from pain. And I think that, uh, you know, I saw the heart of these guys, you know, and, and these guys were extremely emotional, vulnerable people, you know, and, and uh, so I just grew up in that dichotomy of, you know, outward violence, you know, illicit drug use, but it was a very endearing thing because, you know, they wanted to protect me and my sister and my mother. And uh, they would, you know, you know, around the campfire, you know, every night they would just tell me stories. And it, it was a very rich environment to uh, to be a part of. See, and it's it's so interesting. I know you are very familiar with Sebastian Junger, Junger's book, Tribe. And when he talks about the difference between the Vietnam vets coming home and the ticker tape parades of World War II, I see completely the ripple effect of that. And, you know, you get these men who, as you said, were drafted, were dragged, you know, sometimes kicking and screaming, literally, overseas to go fight for this country. And then when they come back, you know, some of them are spat on and called baby killers. And so they had that tribe in Vietnam. They probably, you know, I'm sure if you studied the Vietnam vets with their unit at the time, they were probably held together pretty well. Now they're taken from them. There's no storytelling. There's no processing of what they did in war. And now they're back in quote unquote civilization. So you can see how a, a, a biker gang or whatever, you know, tribe like that becomes that new tribe because no one else, you know, that was from a positive background was really reaching out to these men and women to say thank you for what they've done and help them kind of transition back into regular civilian life. So that was obviously the unofficial coping mechanism for many of these vets. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, I'm very close with a lot of uh, Vietnam vets to this day. And one of the, the guys, uh, it's an amazing uh, human being. His name is Shad Meshad. And uh, he started the vet centers or he was asked to start the vet centers. Uh, when he came back, he was a psych officer that was embedded with uh, uh, combat infantry units in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, he basically works out there in, in uh, you know, like Venice Beach, Skid Row. And, and, and basically he does outreach stuff for troubled veterans now. He still does. it. He's been doing that for like 50 years, you know, since he's been back. And, uh, you know, being around men like that, you know, it just makes me realize, I mean, not only my upbringing that we were touching on earlier, but just being around men like this guy, Shad Meshad, uh, you know, it's just you see that this is this timeless thing, you know, I mean, it's all different flavors. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the parades and, and the, you know, just the celebration of, of, war, of the conclusion of World War Two, you know, and, and then, you know, when we get into Vietnam, how it was just kind of this dirty war that the American public, you know, necessarily didn't want to fight. They didn't want to betray their country, but they they didn't believe in what was taking place. And, uh, you know, and then you go to where we are today. And I mean, you know, and where we're at today is it's just this strip mall. You know, it's this this soulless environment, mostly. And this is again, this is just my my perspectives. You know, I mean, uh, but I feel that I do speak for the large majority of, of uh, combat veterans out there. You know, it's like you come back from these combat experiences in Iraq or uh, Afghanistan 
And it's a soulless consumerism world out there. And and when you come back, it's like you want you you believe in that brotherhood that that Sebastian discussed, you know, very well in in, in tribe. Uh, but you know, in the coming home, I, I I've spoken with very dear uh, Vietnam veterans uh, that I would rather be spat on than people be indifferent to me. And so you know, when we talk about Vietnam, when we talk about uh, you know, World War II, uh, you know, these, these experiences that guys had, you know, the numbers are, are, are difficult to compare to what we see in today's combat. Uh, but, you know, me speaking specifically for myself, uh, the majority of my career was in special operations. You know, as a Marine, I was a reconnaissance Marine and, and the second half of my career, I was a pararescueman. And, the people at the tip of the spear, the guys that make the military their job, specifically in tier two or tier one units, they do most of the fighting. I mean, I think it's something remarkable. I mean, like less than 2% of the entire military will see direct combat. But of that 2% that see direct combat, you know, uh, and speaking for myself and my peers, we would see it all the time. And when you see that all the time, you make a career out of it. And so you have guys, you know, such as myself that have done over 10 combat deployments and have, you know, an absolutely overwhelming amount of trauma and grief and projection of violence as their occupation. And when we come back, you know, we come back to this, you know, politically correct, consumerized world of what, you know, democracy is. And I mean, I think that, you know, even when we look at, you know, with the pandemic uh, and just all of these difficulties that the country's going through, you know, with the, the George Floyd situation, with the, you know, the racial tensions, all this stuff that's going on, you know, I think a lot of that, it's just everyone's at this boiling point of, you know, a lack of belief in our leadership, you know, and I mean, when you look at just the circus that the, the Republican and the Democratic Party are, uh, you know, when you have these guys, I mean, most people that are in special operations as operators, I mean, they, they have opinions, but they care more about the, the, the men to their left and right and doing the job as a medium to develop themselves mentally, physically and spiritually. They really don't get too involved in politics. Uh, but, you know, it's just it's just such a world. But I guess, you know, to, to bring this thing back down to the point that we first started talking about, you know, that indifference, you know, that we come back to now. Like, I mean, I fly a commercial airliner to and from combat. And when I land, everybody wants to clap and applaud. And I might still have, you know, you know, dried blood and brains on my, my, my uniform. And again, I mean, uh, 98% of the rest of those people on that aircraft with me that land on that rotator, they didn't really see combat. But it's the guys that really do, they it's just like a funeral every time you come home. Uh, you know, you come back to your your family and you try to pick the pieces up to your family uh, to reconnect with your children, to reconnect with your spouse. It's a very difficult world. And, and no one in the history of the United States has deployed more or more often over their entire career than the men and women that I deployed with, you know, and, and, uh, when I see that, you know, I mean, just, again, like 
I'm speaking for a very specific group, but for that 2% of the, the military that are truly special operators within the military, we're just lost, man. You know, we don't, you know, we, we take pride in what the guys did in Vietnam. You know, we take pride with what was given during World War II and Korea. Uh, but at the same time, it's just we don't we don't have anything to celebrate because it's it's a, such a low intensity burn for our entire careers within within, you know, combat arms nowadays. It's just such a very odd occupation. There's not a place to celebrate it, you know. You see guys reach out. I've, I've made a lot of friends. I've got a lot of dear friends involved in uh, developing their own brands of combat veterans. You know, a friend of mine, uh, Tommy, who, who developed a thing called Raise the Black. You see all these different, you know, the Havoc Journal on Instagram, all these different things. But it's like combat veterans trying to find a medium and, and an identity outside of the military. And I think that's that's what's troubling to me. That's what's troubled me. I've, I've been retired now for about a year and a half. Uh, but trying to find a positive narrative forward beyond the identity that we held for our entire adult lives. I mean, for me, that was 25 years. I was, I was in the military and 23 of that was in special operations. And so to step away from that, there has to be a lot of gravity to try to reinvent yourself beyond those experiences. And for me, it was tattooing and, and we can get into that bizarrely, but uh, uh, you know, it's just that, that that's so difficult for men. I see so many people get out of the military and they just want to go into contracting or they want to go into teaching the military or some kind of peripheral job that is close to or akin to what they were doing in the military. Almost as if now they're going to go contract on a higher level within, you know, the CIA ground branch or, you know, you know, take your pick, you know, of, of any of the, the, the contracting things guys can do. But my whole point to them is like, you know, you owe it to yourself to do a complete 180. Whatever you think who you are or what you did in the military is, find the dichotomy of that and then move towards that because – that's the only way you're going to find perspective. And that was a big uh, reason why I got into the arts and tattooing and doing fine art and painting and write, you know, writing the book that I did just to get into artistic endeavors to find perspective from those decades of experience in something that, that I owe myself the, the time to decompress and attempt to find value out of those experiences, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, your, your career was incredibly long, but I think that's one of the, the things I watch, whether it's the military, whether it's first responders, is that identity. And, and you, you know, I try and, I try and point this out a lot. When we enter the profession, we are the yin and the yang. You know, the, the hard part of you is the one that actually, you know, is the operator, is the one that's engaging in the firefight, going into the burning building, you know, rappelling down into a battle zone to to go rescue, you know, injured uh, members of the military. But the soft part is why you do that. And what I see happen in the first responder um, professions, and I'm sure it happens with you as well, is sometimes we lose that soft part. So then you just identify as the chest-beating firefighter, police officer, whatever it is. 
But the key to transitioning that I, that I've, you know, again, from all these amazing stories I've heard and, and watching my own transition away from the fire service um, is you can have that exact same purpose to make the world better, but it can just look a different way. So for you, for example, you know, going from, you know, power rescue to force blue, you're still helping people every single day, but it just looks different now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, service, uh, you know, it, it's it's a very, you know, straight paradigm to get into civil service, military service, whatever it is you're going to do, because it's very the whole job premise is to be selfless and to serve the community, serve the country, serve DOD, whatever it is that you're doing. But that life of service is just in a way. You know, it can be effectively, you know, placed onto anything and and. One of the, the, the strong things that, that, that I truly believe is, is uh, we have to heal others to heal ourselves. And, and uh, you know, that, that, you know, I think that necessity itself in, in life is what, what developed. Uh, you mentioned Force Blue. That the, it's a nonprofit uh, diving organization that takes special operations combat veterans uh, who are combat diver trained and it repurposes us to do marine conservation. And I mean, and that's a pretty strong dichotomy right there. So, you know, nothing but, you know, these elite combat divers that go and blow up coral heads or place mines on ships and all these, you know, things, or maybe just use it to, you know, clandestinely get on beaches or to locations, uh, now to take those skills outside of military service and attempt to, clean the ocean up, uh, make it a better place, bring awareness to ocean conservation, to regrow coral, to do those things that are, you know, in quite dichotomy uh, from the way they were initially trained or utilized. I think that that's powerful. And, uh, yeah, I was thankful to get involved in that with a buddy of mine, Rudy Reyes, uh, who was a young student of mine uh, as I was, uh, I was, while I was a reconnaissance Marine, I was an instructor within those ranks for some time. And I, I felt like I was a shaman, you know, Buddhist monk, uh, you know, trainer of, of uh, reconnaissance Marines. And Rudy was one of my students and uh, we became close friends uh, throughout the years. Uh, whenever he developed uh, Force Blue, he reached out to me. I was, I was one of the first guys that he reached out to. And I met up with him in small little cafe in Brooklyn. I was tattooing in Brooklyn at the time. I think I was still in the military, but I would take leave and, and tattoo at different shops, you know, throughout the, the country. And uh, we met up and and uh, I tell them, you know, hell yeah, let's do this. And so we went into this immersive program where we developed a way to teach and train guys like ourselves to become champions of uh, marine conservation and that was basically we flew to the cayman islands and spent a couple weeks uh with uh the the absolute best marine conservationists in the world and they educated us on all the things that really matter and we got hands-on you know with, with pretty much everything that uh, uh we were completely ignorant to of as far as just the the life forces within the ocean itself and and uh you know, being a part of those programs now and bringing uh, many more team members into that uh, is is 
is such a cathartic experience, you know, to see guys that have only seen destructive awe, you know, that, that uh, you know, most special operations combat veterans, I think the things that shake their foundation is the amount of traumatic or destructive awe that they've experienced, you know, whether that's from calling in airstrikes into the enemy or, uh, you know, just projecting violence as a job to see that, that traumatic awe shift into just the beauty and the awe of nature, you know, to, to hold a manta ray, uh, to touch a shark, to, you know, touch a whale shark, to be in the ocean and see massive teeming life underwater and realize that it needs help as well. Like, like as human beings, we're destroying the ocean. And uh, I mean, just pick your cause, like you're saying, whatever you want to serve. But I think in that way, you can find catharsis and perspective and you can you can find healing through healing other things or other people, you know, and in that service itself, it kind of leads itself full circle. Yeah, no. And it's it's so amazing to watch, whether it's Rudy with with um, uh, Force Blue, excuse me, or um Ryan Parrott as a Navy SEAL with Sons of a Flag. I mean, all these these nonprofits that have popped up that have come from you know responders from from military and seeing not only the good they're doing, but the healing that's that's happening by the people that are actually part of that. And you touched a little while ago on um you know on the the mental health element and and turning to you know say illicit drugs. One of the things that I try and bring up a lot because I've seen it work in in portugal is to me it's a huge disservice that we still have um addiction listed as a crime you know and all our addicts get arrested and thrown in, in jail um and you get portugal for example that's decriminalized that where it's even worse is, is a number of people I had on here that had huge success with for example psilocybin you know being being a great treatment either for for ptsd for tbi and they have to go to another country to get that so what is your perspective on on you know the whole addiction um legality versus us maybe looking at addiction as a mental health and removing this prohibition that's put you know mental health crisis men and women in prison for decades and decades yeah i mean that's that's a really broad topic man (laughs) you know i mean because you know there's so much with uh just the FDA, you know, what is that? There's a, there's a term. It's uh, a truth is a truth until it's organized, right? And so, you know, even modern medicine nowadays is a bit of a racket. You know, it's like you, uh, we got joint pain. Well, let's give you some opioids. If that doesn't work over time, let's just go ahead and, uh, you know, get you surgery. Let's get you a new knee or a new hip. Let's go in there and just, just take care of this stuff. I mean, I got involved uh, very intensely in stem cell therapy, uh, not only for myself, but, uh, you know, my peers and even my son. My son, uh, my younger son has cerebral palsy uh, from a hypoxic episode whenever he was younger. So he's got a hypoxic brain injury. And uh, I got into stem cell therapy uh, to try to promote wellness for combat veterans because it crosses the blood brain barrier and it can have amazing results for traumatic brain injuries. And, uh, we got involved in this. We set up a a 5013C 
it was a, a, a nonprofit called Healing Our Heroes, where we were getting combat veterans uh, free stem cell treatments uh, pro bono. And uh, we made a documentary about it. Uh, uh, I received the treatment. My son received the treatment. And a dear friend of mine, Jimmy Settles, uh, who was uh, shot in the head in Afghanistan in 2010. Uh, and we're all involved in this documentary. And, and uh, But long story short, the FDA shut it down because they – they basically it was going to change the way that the medical community practiced medicine and the model in America today is based off of, you know, basically outpatient surgery, you know, and uh, most of those procedures could be negated with systemic stem cell therapy. And this stuff can be done at like Walmart prices. And, and you mentioned this earlier uh, when we first started talking on this, this interview, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, people going to different countries to do ayahuasca or psilocybin therapies that are extremely effective for uh, any subconscious trauma that, that we've experienced that we just can't let go of or we need help processing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, the FDA basically uh, made stem cell therapy uh, in its purest form illegal in the United States, you know, and, and you see all these uh, people within the entertainment industry, you know, like Mel Gibson, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant. Uh, he was really involved in stem cell therapy uh, before he passed with that helicopter accident. But, you know, all of these people at the uh, that basically have the money to to make this stuff happen. They go to China. They go to Panama. They go to all these different places to receive this because the stuff works. And uh, it, unfortunately, you know, the government, you know, regulates things sometimes not for virtuous reasons. You know, I mean, virtue left, you know, politics and medicine long times ago, you know. So, I mean, it's just we live in a very complicated world. I mean, but to speak directly at, uh, you know, whenever I the last few years of my military career, I really struggled with grief. I really struggled with post-traumatic stress from my combat experiences and that's difficult because, and I think just all first responders or anyone listening uh, to this, uh, you know, they just, they understand. I mean, when you self-identify for that, that sometimes that, that hinders your career. If you start, you know, self-identifying that I have nightmares, I have suicide ideation, um, I feel completely removed or numb from my loved ones, uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. All of those those things can be very self-limiting uh, within, you know, the progress of your, your career, specifically at the tail end of your career, because you start getting a certain amount of rank or prestige. And when you start self-identifying with that stuff, it just really pulls the carpet out from your, your forward trajectory of your career. And uh, that definitely happened to me. Uh, I feel like I kind of detonated relationships uh, and uh, basically I was having significant suicide ideation and I was having reoccurring nightmares of combat situations that I had survived. And, uh, unfortunately, I mean, every time we would get in the helicopter and the APU would fire up on the helo, it, it was irrelative to me consciously controlling thoughts. But I mean, I would basically have panic attacks, you know, and, I knew that everything that I was doing was just reaffirming 
and I guess deeper seeding those subconscious thoughts because I mean, as, as a pararescueman, specifically here up in Alaska, you know, at least once a week you're going to fly a helicopter or parachute into someone's worst, the worst day of their lives. You know, we have a lot of small aircraft crashes. We have a lot of bear maulings. We have a lot of uh, hypothermic or near drownings. Uh, we have a lot of pretty gnarly stuff out here. And I mean, just doing the job as a pararescueman, you know, you're risking your life to get to them. You know, I mean, there's many a night, two in the morning, it could be 20 below, 30 below, and you're parach halo parachuting into the ground to plane crashes or into the ocean, uh, you know, just to access these patients. And, uh, you know, your mortality really has to be secondary to everything. And that's fine. You know, you want to experience that for five to 10 years, that's fine. But when you grow with those experiences, uh, you know, I mean, I did, I did that here in Alaska for 15 years. And when you start normalizing those surreal and, you know, experiences, there is no normal anymore. There is no justification. And I did find uh, EMDR therapy. Uh, and that's where basically uh, it's, a, it's a psychotherapy that uh, you basically move your eyes back and forth or you stimulate bilaterally and they access your subconscious. I did find that extremely uh, helpful. You know, I mean, uh, there's also, you know, they, they combine EMDR with uh, psilocybin. You can do uh, basically EMDR with low doses of, of uh, psilocybin mushroom, and uh, it accesses your subconscious in a much more effective way. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm involved in right now is doing research with ayahuasca. Uh, and again, we have to go to Costa Rica to do this stuff. You know, I mean, you know, the evilization of drugs is so political in this country. And I mean, granted, you know, I, I, we talked a little bit about how I grew up. You know, I mean, recreational drugs were everywhere. Around the house where I grew up, everything was extremely accessible. But, uh, you know, there's no evils in those. You know, what's evil is is not talking about why someone would not want to live the life that they're doing or want to improve their lives. Um, but, uh you know, especially, you know, any botanicals, things that are just grown, there, there's amazing, you know, research and there's an amazing, you know, ways that those can be used to benefit people's lives. Uh, whether that's psilocybin EMDR therapy, uh, whether that is, uh, you know, thoughtful use of cannabis products uh, to, uh, you know, very extreme uh, experiences with ayahuasca. You know, if those things are all done in the right context, they're extremely beneficial to everybody, you know, not just uh, people with, you know, traumatic psychic injuries from from combat or violence. I mean, we can all benefit from those things. But, uh, you know, just getting past the taboo is is the first part of that, you know, getting past that and, and, and realizing that we can all grow, you know, from these experiences and uh, you know, I myself, you know, I found great benefit in sharing my stories and sharing my experiences uh, just because it, uh, it's an affirming thing. It, it finds me, uh, it gives me meaning and gives those, those experiences meaning outside of just holding them inside myself, you know. 
Absolutely. Well, and you mentioned your friend um, Shad and working on Skid Row. Again, the, the, I'm assuming that these veterans that you said are a lot of them from the, the Vietnam era onwards, when they were small children, weren't dreaming of being addicts, homeless, whatever, you know, some of these men and women are. But then, you know, childhood trauma happened, then being drafted and, and having to see and having to do what they did. And then to come back and now they're caught with an illicit drug and they're thrown in prison because, well, that's illegal. You know, and I mean, it to me, I, I get that frustration that you're talking about coming back and seeing this kind of um, strip mall mentality that you're talking about. Because even in the fire service, as a firefighter paramedic, I wrote a book about this because, you know, we have a different perspective. We get to pull the curtain back and see, you know, the wizard, as it were. And there's so much bullshit. You know, the, all the, the chronic disease management, you know, with the pills and potions, we, we're the medics that stick tubes down people's throats and defibrillate them and they still die with a sack full of meds. You know, we see the, the ripple effect of the illicit drugs and, you know, the empowering of the, the underworld and these, these teenagers that murder each other over a freaking rented apartment. It's just, we see all that stuff. So that facade of, you know, quote unquote civilization is, is bullshit. And I see, you know, these homeless veterans, these addicts, these, you know, these firefighters that I've lost from heroin because they couldn't get their opiate anymore, you know, and it's just the the root of the court. So many of these issues is mental health. And I mean mental health. We have trauma. We grow from it if it's processed properly through EMDR, through counseling, through whatever it is. And then we become more resilient. But right now we take someone who's in crisis, who's an addict, and we throw them in prison. We lock them in a box where drugs are used, you know, by predators. And, you know, how, how are they going to be better when they come out the other end? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, as you were speaking, uh, it reminded me of I was listening to another podcast. It might have been Joe Rogan. Uh, and Joe Rogan was speaking. I forget the guest that he was speaking to, but he was talking about uh, the way that uh, I think it was Rhonda Patrick uh, he was talking to. But either way, uh, the, the the conversation was based off of uh, how uh, Switzerland or Sweden was dealing with its opioid crisis. And I guess they, uh, you know, they don't criminalize that at all. What they, In fact, what they do is they get them the best drugs that they can. They get them the best, like if someone's uh, strung out on heroin, they get them the best heroin they can and they have to come to this clinic to take it. And uh, what they do is they basically found that, you know, you just can't evilize it. You can't just put people in jail because the the impetus of why someone wants to use heroin is because they want to escape their lives. They want to escape their lives. They don't want to live the life that they're living. And they did all these studies, you know, with these rats. And obviously there's differences between rats and human beings, but uh, sociologically speaking, it's very similar. And so this specific study with rats that they did is they doped, uh, they had like a doped uh, feeder uh, thing of water that they would give them. And it had opioids within this water. And uh, what they found is if they gave rats like rat misery, whatever that is, just overcrowded, just horrible conditions, all of the rats wanted to drink from that tainted water well with the opioids in it. But when they gave rats like this rat utopia where this like perfect rat world that they were living in and they offered them the opioid water, none, they would just aversely not, not use that. And so 
Uh, and this was, again, this was these, these researchers in the UK, they developed these national programs where they're like, well, let's apply that to human beings because the opioid crisis is not because, you know, people are just, you know, weak and, uh, you know, once they get drugs in their system, they're just goners. You can't help them. It, they tried to look at the impetus of why people use hard street drugs, and that's to escape the life that they're living. And if you basically make the individual want to live their life and that where they can seek pleasure and grow in their life, it makes absolutely no sense that you where you'd want to just be high all the time. And so I thought that was really powerful, you know, and I think about that, you know, the way that we do that, do, you know, run that paradigm through in this country is you basically evilize, you know, the addict, the addict has to turn to, you know, criminal activity. They end up getting into the system and it's just this perpetual cycle, you know, but, you know, the way to beat this is to, you know, find someone a life worth living, make them want to live the lives that they're experiencing and they won't want to disassociate, you know. Absolutely. I think that I don't know if, if he was talking about it with Rhonda Patrick, but he had a guest, Johan Hari, who had I had on as well. He wrote a book called Chasing the Scream. And that that um, oh, experiment. Oh, yeah, yeah, my memory's horrible. No, no. But I mean, I'm sure he's discussed it with other guests, too. But Rat Park was that, you know, that um, experiment. And Johan has a great um, quote. He said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And I think it's, that's that's exactly it. He nailed it. But so with um you know with with this this uh this storyline that we're going on with you and obviously we're just picking up tiny tiny little um moments of your life and you've got such an, an incredible life story that I'd love to do another another you know episode when we've got more time to kind of delve in more but um clearly growing up the way you did there were there were elements that you know were probably traumatic in some shape or form around the you know some of the violence and stuff that that the group that you were immersed in were a part of. But listening to your conversation with Jason, another extremely, you know, powerful moment for you was, you know, when you almost lost your son, Oz. So you, you, you've been in Marine Recon. Obviously, you're functioning at a high level now as an operator. Tell me, if you don't mind, about, about that day and then how that changed you and your mindset moving on from there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're definitely jumping all over the place. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, my, my father was in a, in a pretty intensely violent, you know, biker culture that I grew up in and, and, uh, being around that was formative. I joined the military right out of high school, uh, spent a couple years in the Marine Corps, uh, as an infantry Marine. And then at the time you had to do that for like two years before you could apply for Marine reconnaissance got into Marine reconnaissance and then made basically uh, spent a total of 12 years in the Marine Corps and 10 of that were in Marine reconnaissance uh, with different duty stations. I had a very colorful career in that. Uh, I was a uh, uh, instructor for uh, a long time and I took it very seriously uh, within uh, Marine reconnaissance. Again, I, I had joked earlier that I felt like I was like this shaman priest within that culture and I, I took it very seriously um, left, uh, my Marine Corps experience and joined pararescue and enjoyed the training. I mean, uh, selection course was just kind of like summer camp to me. I was in amazing shape. You know, I joined the military, uh, 
you know, with the intention, I've always been trying to be very clear with the intentions that I set with myself. And I don't know where that comes from, but, uh, you know, I joined, uh, the military knowing that I wanted those experiences. I wanted to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually from those experiences. And that I was going to use the military to educate me in those mediums. And, uh, I was very serious about it. I mean, I was a Marine Corps triathlon team, uh, uh, I took things very seriously. I was way into meditation and yoga and, uh, you know, I, I was, I was very serious about training my mind and body. And when I went into pararescue, I enjoyed selection course. Uh, and then we got into, uh, where I was completing my training as a pararescue man. It's a, it's a real arduous process to, to go through the pipeline. Uh, but, uh, I had injured myself doing a halo jump uh, during training and uh, through complications, I was paralyzed and my wife was uh, pregnant with our second son and I was due to have surgery on my back. And again, I couldn't walk. I was paralyzed below the waist and I was going to have surgery, uh, uh, microdiscectomy, at this, at a hospital in Florida. And so my wife, and uh, family flew down to assist me in, in, in this process, but we we're also moving into a new home, like on a new post, like on base. And uh, uh, so the day I got back from this back surgery, uh, my wife went to wake up my son. And again, so we're just moving into this new on base house and uh, it's nothing but boxes. I'm sleeping on a futon and uh, my father and mother were there helping us unbox, take care of me, take care of my wife. My wife had just given birth to our second son. And uh, uh, we went to wake him up from a nap. This is the day I got back from uh, the the back surgery that I'd had. And uh, we went to wake up my son from a nap and he was four months old, but uh, completely cyanotic, no breathing, no pulse. And my father runs him down to me and my son, it's just, you know, it's just a parent's worst nightmare. My son's ashen blue. He's four months old, uh, no breathing, no pulse. And so I, I basically sat up on this futon and started doing CPR on him. I was still jacked up from the, the surgery that I'd had earlier that morning and, uh, did CPR on my son, uh, and uh, it was that was a really long process, but uh, you know, I mean, it was 20 minutes of CPR on him with my older son watching me. Uh, this is a time when we didn't have cell phones, and so my wife ran out of the the front of the house and ripped the screen door off because she was trying to. We didn't we didn't have a phone. We didn't have a landline in the house because we had just moved there. And so she goes screaming through the neighborhood, screaming that her baby's dying and she needs a phone. And, uh, at some point the paramedics came, uh, and I know they just, they could not process what, I mean, even as, as a veteran paramedic yourself and with me looking in hindsight, it's a crazy scene because I'm doing CPR on my son. And why isn't, why aren't you bringing your son to me? And why are you just sitting on this futon? You know, like, why are your legs so emaciated? You know, like I had walked in three months, you know, and it's just there's just all these crazy things that are taking place. And uh, 
so it's kind of like my injury uh, or my, my attempt to come back from that injury of paralysis as a, as a young pararescueman and the injury of my infant son, Oz, at the time. Those are very linked uh, subconsciously into my memory. And, uh, you know, I went on to have a very, very colorful career as a pararescueman. I did recover. Uh, my son uh, is nonverbal. He's 17 now. He's got type 1 diabetes uh, and he's nonverbal. Uh, but he's an athlete, man. And him and I, I feel like we're almost like the same person. I mean, because we're just so subconscious related to those those traumas that we experienced when he was four months old. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was kind of haunted, obviously, with those experiences. And I think Throughout my career as a pararescueman, I would take grave risk to attempt to save others' lives. And uh, in reflection, I think that, you know, with the nightmares that I've had and just through tons of counseling that I've experienced, I was always attempting to save my son uh, as a pararescueman in combat or in the wilds of Alaska here. You know, whether that's jumping at a lower altitude than our regs allow with, uh, you know, different parachute systems or flying into combat into active firefights to attempt to save, you know, life. I, uh, I think my entire career, I was attempting to salvage my son's trauma in some way. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a wild ride for sure. You know, when I heard you telling Jason that story, it really kind of resonated with me. Obviously, you know, I can't imagine it as a father, you know, with your own child, but it seemed to be the through line between that and some of the stories. And, you know, I'd be interested to get your perspective on any stories that come to your mind. But one thing that really haunted me in my career was the inability to save. And the reason being, when we go through fire, you know, fire school, we go through EMT school, we go through medic school, if you do A, B, and C, then the, you get the kid out of the building. You know, if you do A, B, and C, the person's heart restarts and they jump up and they give you a big hug. And the reality is, especially for me, I was a black cloud in any kind of, you know, any sort of terminal rhythm once they were, you know, in a, in a V-fib or anything like that. I had never gone back. I had the brain bleeds. I had all these things that were irreversible. And it, it it doesn't compute because you're taught A plus B equals C. So was there an element almost, even though you saved your son and he's, you know, like you said, an amazing young man thriving, was there that inability to save element of that? And then did that then add and compound as you lost more and more patients as a pararescue man? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think that, uh, you know, as, as students, like when we're going through whatever schools we're going through to get into our occupation, you project. And in your moments of projection, you're thinking, well, this is the way it's going to be, you know. Um, some of the most surreal experience of my life, other than doing CPR on my son, uh, was in 2010 in northeastern Afghanistan. Uh, we were involved in an operation called uh, Bulldog Bite. Um, it was extremely surreal and, uh, we had, we had a lot of, uh, it was an extremely traumatic week. Uh, one of the men that I was in charge of was shot in the head. Uh, you know, 
it, it, it very, very surreal. But, you know, we lost 11 guys that week uh, who were killed in action. And, you know, over 40 of them were category alphas or cat one patients that were uh, dismembered or shot with crew served weapons, you know. Uh, and there were basically, you know, eight of us that round the clock for eight days, pulled those guys out of firefights. Uh, and every time we flew in, we were, you know, getting shot at every time we were trying to get these guys. And this was very surreal stuff. This was hoisting into the side of a mountain where a guy might be missing his arm. Who's dragging his dead buddy to you, you know? And, um, that was a week long period or an eight day period known as bulldog bite. And, uh, when we came back from that, um, we have seer psychologists, seer psychs is what we call them. And they're there to basically just uh, assess us to make sure that we can, can continue our job. Cause we had, we did this for eight days and we had three days back at our main base. And then we we're going to go back out for another week to do these same activities. And uh, I mean, this is like, you know, MVG shot off your helmet or you're taking rounds in the body armor or rounds through your clothes or, you know, just very surreal experiences. And uh, so the seer psych uh, was interviewing me and uh, we were discussing. He's like, so what symptoms are you having right now? And uh, I think it was probably just three days earlier. I we had been we, we had hoisted into a situation and we became overwhelmed by the enemy where we were overrun and it went to hand-to-hand fighting. We called in airstrikes on our position and I had four men die in my arms, uh, during the midst of this. And, uh, I was talking to this, uh, the, the seer psych and, uh, again, he's evaluating to make, evaluating me to make sure I can continue to do my job on this, this next week that we've got. And he's like, so what symptoms do you have? And I was, uh, I was like, you know, I just kind of break down crying. I don't know. I can't explain it, but I'll just stop. And I like the the breeze hits me in this way. And I have to just I go on my knees and I start crying. I can't I can't control it. It just happens. And uh, and what was kind of callous is this this seer psych. He's like, you know, he's like I he almost kind of started laughing. He was like, you know, I can't I've developed a term for you guys. And he's like, the term I call is is the Superman syndrome or the Spartan syndrome. He's like, you guys think you can save the world. He's like, that's what makes you really, really good. He's like, but that's what fails you. And that's why you break, you know, and obviously, you know, I mean, some of these patients that we were dealing with, one of the young men was missing the back of his head and he's talking to me, you know, the whole time. And so, I mean, obviously a patient like that is not going to make it, but despite that, whenever you have someone die under your care, despite the circumstances, like you're implicated in that death because we are there to save life. We're there to salvage life. And when you don't do that, you inherit the guilt and grief of that person's life. You know, and that just, that's going to haunt you the rest of your days. I mean, cause you can consciously say, I know that that wasn't my fault, but when you have someone begging for their life in your arms and they die, there's there's a human to human exchange there that that cannot go unpaid. And I think that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is what makes us good at our jobs because, you know, we're going to work so hard. We're going to project so much 
at our, the level of even our own mortality to save this other person's life. But in the end, that's what breaks us because, you know, we break emotionally, we break subconsciously because no one can shoulder that amount of responsibility. You know, even when you yourself are, are just completely martyring yourself for someone else's life and it fails, like, well, where does that leave you the next morning? You know, it, it's and you make your job. That, that's your job. You know, it's very difficult to hold that in perspective with any thought of a career with, with any thought of attempting to balance anything in your life after those experiences. Um, but you know, I, I always used to mess around with the guys. I'm like, everybody wants to be the guy until you're the guy, you know? And it's like, when you experience that level of trauma, I mean, I mean, just people in, in the, the first responder capacity, you know, that, that that whole paradigm, if you do your job long enough, you're going to inherit grief. You know, and, you know, I definitely believe that, um, you know, you have to endure the burning to produce light, right? Like, I mean, I think that the greatest citizens of this country are its first responders and its combat veterans, you know, because we have a perspective of service. But I think that we owe ourselves the ability to articulate that with humble wisdom. You know, you have to temper that. It's not a political thing. You know, everything's so politically charged in this country now, you know, and it's like, I think those are just these political parties using us as sheep, man. You know, it's like, but us as first responders and us as combat veterans, we're the greatest citizens of this country because we understand service. But I think beyond that, we have to understand how to articulate our experiences in humble and wise ways. I mean, you can go get a job working at the gas station and change everyone's lives that you touch every day. And I think that that's what we have to find ourselves doing. You know, that's what that is the challenge to us. You know, like when you've seen the things that we've seen, how do you live with that? How do you find a positive narrative forward? You know that and, and that's for us to find out. That's for us to figure out, you know, and it's not growth is not easy. Usually when you're experiencing pain, you're growing or you're stimulating growth. But, you know, a lot of people are averse and, and a lot of us do not recover from that psychic pain of isolation, of darkness, of aloneness. But that's what it takes. I mean, that, that is the price of growth. That is the price of your perspective growing is going through those difficulties, you know. And, and I think that, uh, you know, everybody, we're in a really weird culture now where everybody gets a trophy and all this stuff. You know, it's just everything's so politically correct. But, you know, growth hurts. And I think that us in first responder capacities I think that we have been on an accelerated humanitarian program through our professional careers. And I think that we owe it to ourselves to grow beyond those uh, and to attempt to make the world a better place, not just with what we did as first responders, but as citizens, as, you know, just coming back to ourselves. You know, like I love mythology. I love Greek mythology and, and I love uh 
the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Because the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey is of a man returning home to himself after combat or after trauma. And I think that, uh, you know, we all have to fight the Cyclops. We all have to fight the siren songs. We all have to fight all of those, those trials and tribulations that Odysseus dealt with, whether you're a World War I vet, World War II vet, Vietnam vet, OEF, OIF, you know, whatever, whatever flavor you want to put it, we all have to take those experiences and grow from them. And uh, I mean, we're at a difficult point in this country because everything fights for our attention. You know, we live in this social media world where everything's at our fingertips, you know, where, uh, you know, world pandemics are turned political to fear mongering, to control issues, to, you know, just this this really odd place that we find ourselves in this country. But I think that, uh, you know, mastering our fear and you know, really trying to understand ourselves and learn from our experiences. It's not just a cool social media post. It's not, you know, a flash in a pan. You know, I really do believe that the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, it beckons our artistic, creative explanation of these experiences that we inherit through service. And I mean, that's what that's what I found is cathartic. That's why I find doing even podcasts, speaking with you, uh, or, you know, the, the other podcasts that I've done, it's meaningful because the intention is pure. It's, it's, it's a still a selfless thing. And I think that me attempting to articulate my experiences honors the grief and the sacrifice or the cost that was paid to experience those. You know, I mean, I definitely feel I'm lucky to be alive, you know, many times over. I'm lucky to get to share my experiences in my son's lives. You know, uh, I mean, life's tough, man. The struggle is real, but it takes us a long time to understand that, that the salvation is hidden in the struggle. You know, it's not just handed to you. It's like we have this huge lie in America and it's that comfort is success. Comfort is a slow death, man. Like there, there is nothing in comfort other than able you can catch your breath, but that's not growth and that's not truth. Struggle is truth. And we have to find salvation in that stroke to stroke day to day of that struggle. You know, it's like everybody wants to be Puff Daddy driving a Rolls Royce or something, but that's, that's it's just not reality. You know, just like when we, we you see these things on, you know, social media or YouTube or on movies through Hollywood, it's all a lie. It's a lie. And it, it, we all struggle. We all we all have difficulty with our lives. But we're all born of the same thing. And I think that just the sooner that we realize that, that comfort is not success. Growth occurs in discomfort. And significant growth happens through selflessness and service. And I think that people just need to understand that because I mean, to make the world a better place is we have to be selfless. We have to act not for ourselves, but for the things around us, the things that cannot champion themselves. You know, and I think that, you know, I mean, I, that's been a big part of my life as a father, having a special needs son, you know, just, just understanding that day to day. You know, I mean, so many people are like, man, Rod, you're an amazing father. Like when I was talking to Jason, he's like, you're such a good father. I'm like, 
I don't, I don't even, I, I don't look at it like that. I mean, just, of course you, you, you champion and you take care of the things that you love. But I think the power of dichotomy is those other things, that is you as well. Like, it's only our ego that separates us from the world. And I think it's it's very easy to kind of get past that in an Eastern sense, like when we look at our children, where we're just looking at ourselves. And I mean, the further we can project that even further, it's not just my children, but the community. The community is me as well. But I mean, man, I mean, the country, man, we we are really in a weird, odd spot. I mean, again, just with technology, with manipulation, which is the way, you know, the, the state and the climate that we are at in this world right now, it's, it's insane, you know, and it, it's, it's beyond commercialization, you know, I mean, where we're, you know, kind of sticking tongue in cheek about, you know, just the, the strip mall world out there, man, I mean, it's, you know, you got to fight for your, your, your sanity every day. And I mean, that struggle is real. And that's where I've really bonded with Jason McCarthy and go Ruck. And just trying to create a community of empowerment, you know, I mean, even like in this this time of difficulty with the coronavirus, with all this crazy shit going on in the country and in the world right now. Empower yourself. Don't look at what you can't do. Look at what you can do, you know, and, and be the change, you know, the whole Gandhi thing. You know, it's like go outside, exercise, enjoy yourself, you know. Be responsible. Do the things that, you know, follow your dreams. You know, it's like, but yeah, I guess the main point of this whole rambling is, is to just completely understand that, that, you know, the struggle is real. None of us have it figured out. You know, the whole comfort thing, like success is not comfort. It's not sitting in a hot tub with a giant cigar. That's a moment, but it's all of that journey that brought you to a feeling of, you know, contentedness, that's powerful. But um, yeah, man, it's just, you know, we need, we all just need to find the salvation hidden in our struggles, man. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, a little while ago about being in a dark place, having suicide ideation. So you had the childhood that you had around, around the, you know, the environment that you were raised in. Then you enter the Marines and become Marine Recon, and you're an elite performer there. Then you are a lifeguard and go in law enforcement for a bit. And I'm totally just cliff noting it because we don't have time to, <laughs> to pull out all these amazing chapters, um, which is why the moment I hit record, I knew that an hour and a half, we weren't even going to scratch the surface. Um, but then you go into pararescue. You almost lose your son, and you hands-on physically have to do CPR yourself. So tell me about your darkest point and then what started working getting you personally back towards you know healing from that yeah so i mentioned in 2010 we saw really significant combat and i'd, I'd seen combat throughout my career uh but this was uh very unnerving like dna altering you just horrific experiences and uh you know, again, you know, we talk about projection, you know, like as, as a uh, paramedic firefighter, you may you might project certain things or you might think things as, as pararescue you think about being uh, hoisting into combat and fighting to the death, you know, to save other people. And, and when that plays out, 
you know, beyond your expectations or beyond your, your subconscious processing, you're just very lost. And, and I came back home and, uh, I started having reoccurring nightmares where I would relive these combat situations, but I would come back. And when I would look at the faces of the men that were dying, it was my, my kids, it was my children's faces on, on these soldiers that were dying. And, uh, you know, Definitely a lot to process, uh, but I had been home about a week after that deployment. And uh, me and my two sons were watching Forrest Gump. And it's like, how many times have you seen Forrest Gump, you know? I mean, I don't know, like a half a dozen times, you know? But we were just kind of just on the TV, and I'm sitting there with my arms around my two sons. And we're sitting on the couch just kind of hanging out, maybe right after dinner, before dinner, something like that. And there was that combat scene where it's raining, and then it stops raining. And then they get into this big firefight where they're exchanging, you know, small arms and everything. And it's just that was so viscerally, viscerally real to me. It engaged something in me. And I started crying and I couldn't control it. And I went outside and, and uh, my older son went and got my wife. I mean, because it, it, it these things would just come on. These, these grief, this overwhelming tsunami of grief would just overtake me at times. And I knew at that point that this shit was not right, you know. Uh, and it was just really odd, simple stuff. Like I would see a young woman and I would just start crying. Like I couldn't, I can't, I have trouble articulating it because it was just this overwhelming sorrow and grief that would that overcome me. And uh, I knew that things weren't right. I initially reached out to uh, the on-base behavioral health people. And it was a bad fit, man. Like I could tell they, I was really beyond what they had even trained for, you know? I mean, my darkest points I had, uh, and I mean, I still struggle with this stuff. I mean, it's not like, you know, you're just suddenly cured, you know, it's just at some point you want to improve your life and you want to grow from and improve yourself you know like you want to share your experiences with other people you know and at the worst point i mean beyond suicide ideation i think it was it's just murder suicide you know i think you know there's a lot of difficulty being a special needs parent and i think this compounded with all of my grief issues i mean i was ready to take my family out you know and uh and i think a lot of it too as first responders just to touch on this um you know, like mortality is, is on the, is, is peripheral every day, you know? And I think that that's why I think that, uh, suicide is, is a very real option for combat veterans. Like, I'm not condoning it, but I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's at the periphery of someone's experiences. You know, like if, if you're projecting violence and taking life, or if you're, you know, a combat medic and you're treating people that are mutilated or handling mutilated remains on a daily basis, you know, that humanity within you has sailed, you know, like the price of admittance of viewing or experiencing those things of hearing that siren song is you're going to lose a piece of yourself. And I think you lose a piece of your humanity. And I think that, you know, killing others are killing yourself is is not a far thing because you're just like that's just periphery that's right there um and so when i would speak to these behavioral health or mental health professionals they're just like oh shit 
And all I could get a sense from them was, is they just, they, now they're just involved with me in a liability paradigm. They don't really want to help me because you can't help me unless you have experienced what I've experienced. And when I started realizing that other people that had not experienced the level of stuff that I'm dealing with, or just when I would speak, they, these, these healthcare professionals would just be like, holy shit, man, just, we need to get this guy on tricyclic antidepressants. He needs to go to inpatient treatment facilities. He needs to do a shit ton of psychotherapy. That's what they want. That's, that's, you know, you know, cause if I start talking the truth about my own thoughts of my life or taking my family's life, they're just like, holy shit, man, this guy's the guy that's going to do it. And they just take their whole protocol of, you know, responsibility. Okay. Uh, well, do you have any firearms in the house? Do you have this and that? And like, you don't realize, man, I, I, I halo jump as a living with assault rifles. Like weapons are not the problem. Like going down your normal protocol doesn't really matter to me. I, I mean, it, it was just always so disturbing. Uh, but uh, at some point after droves and droves of psychotherapy and inpatient treatment facilities, uh, I realized, you know, I had this one, I had one, one counselor, she mentioned to me, she's like, I've never met anyone who is son, so, sorry, who is so unwilling to accept mercy, love, or grace. And that just hit me like a, you know, like how some people can say things to you at the right moment. It just hits you like a ton of bricks. And it was like, I need to figure out how to accept mercy, love, and grace in my life, whatever, however you want to interpret that. And, uh, I've, I've had an amazing post-military life. I've been, I, you know, like for a year and a half, two years now, I've been retired from the military. Um, I tattoo people. Uh, the people that I've been involved with are absolutely life-affirming, wonderful people. Uh, from shark diving with Laird Hamilton. Uh, and all these things have just cr- have created themselves just through odd conversations to you know, just the odd synchronicity of uh, meeting Casey and uh, Scott Campbell, Casey Neistat and Scott Campbell in Afghanistan to, you know, where I am right now. I mean, it's all just kind of, you know, one thing leads to the next, you know. And I think that the big thing with that is having the courage to say yes to things, to when life offers these opportunities, you have to say yes, you know, Uh you know, in hindsight, people are like, oh, you know, you're just lucky these things are happening to you or whatever's going on. It's like, well, you have to be the right person in the right place in time and you have to say yes. And I think that beyond that, we have to allow our experiences to change us. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think that uh, that we should really kind of, I guess, in this discussion on is you know, just like that guy that does the, the the career in the military and all he wants to do is contract afterwards. It's like, I hope your, your experiences change you. And I hope you allow those experiences to change you because that's what is going to sustain the next chapter. And those chapters keep changing throughout our lives. But let those experiences change us. And we have to really pay attention and learn from them. But change hurts. You know, growth hurts. 
you know, and I think that uh, a lot of people turn away from that. They just want to keep doing the same thing, same thing, same thing. Don't, don't move towards comfort. You know, learn from your experiences and move past them. And that, that will help you kind of write the new chapter. And I think that somehow the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, really listens to that. And I think that whenever you have the courage to let those things change you and you live in a way that is affirming to that, I think that that helps create the next synergy for whatever is next. And without doing that, it, you will never move on, you know, because you're just seeking comfort in emotional or psychic, you know, or personal ways that, that really are not allowing that growth to occur. Uh, but uh, you got to face the music, man. You have to face the music and you owe it to yourself because you've, you've paid the price. You, you've shown up and you've done the job. Uh, you've, you've risked your life to do those things. Uh, so just take it that next step, you know, like, like learn from that, you know, till the soil and learn from those experiences, find a way to express that in the way that you live. You know, because you owe those people that didn't make it and you owe yourself that as well. You owe the people that you love to move on like that. But uh, that's all I got. Man. I got I got to get going, man. I've actually got to go tattoo people right now. <laughs> no, I knew that was coming. <laughs> so just for people listening, your book is Warrior's Creed. Um, and then you've got the Backbone series coming. So if you're up for it, Roger, I would love to do another interview um, in a not too distant future so we can explore more. But uh, I will let you get to your other catharsis, which is tattooing. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you.